following is a teaching from Irving Bible Church. For more information on how you can join us on a Sunday or take your next step, visit irvingbible.org. Good morning. Welcome to Irving Bible Church. My name is Craig. I'm so glad that you've showed up on this holiday weekend and you're in the room. Those of you watching online, thanks for tuning in. We're going to start a little bit different this morning than we normally do. Um, If you are able, I'd like everybody to stand up, please. Everybody stand up. Many of you know my wife and I have a preschool in the area, and one of my biggest challenges as I do chapel there every Monday morning is to get a room full of preschoolers to pay attention to me. And so one of the ways I can do that, I can have everybody stand up, kind of shake out Shake out your wiggles a little bit, uh, focus up here on me, and then I'm going to have you sit down according to categories as I call them out, and if it applies to you, then I want you to sit down. So if you graduated as one of the top 10 people in your high school, I want you to sit down. Not top 10%, top 10 people. You can sit down. Smart group it looks like we've got here. If you graduated summa cum laude from your college, you may sit down. Summa cum laude, not magna cum laude, not cum laude, not laudy mercy, none of that. You just (laughs) summa only. If you went to college on a full athletic scholarship, full athletic scholarship, you wore the jersey at your college, it was all paid for, you can sit down. All right, if you're kind of artsy and at any point in your life you have been paid professionally to act, sing, dance, or paint, you can sit down professionally, not karaoke night at Mona's Bar and Grill. (laughs) And then finally, if you were ever elected to a political office, elected as class favorite, class president, or homecoming king or queen, you may sit down. All right, quite a few of you sat down, but notice that I'm standing, quite a few of us are still standing. So let's give a hand to the people sitting. They've accomplished a lot. And I've got some good news and some bad news for the people that are sitting. The good news is God wants to use you to build his kingdom. The bad news is you may not be his first choice. From what I can read throughout scripture, those of us that are standing, it's typically the ordinary people that God tends to use in extraordinary ways to build his kingdom. All right, everybody can have a seat. Thanks for participating. But just think about the people God's used. Abraham and Sarah, this old washed up couple that God used to start a nation. Moses was a stutterer and God used him to be his spokesperson. Rahab was a prostitute that God used to help his spies take over Jericho. Esther was an adopted orphan who became queen to save Israel. Mary, an unknown teenage girl from nowhere, God chose to carry the very son of God. Peter was a fisherman. Paul was this man who felt so limited by his shortcomings that he spent years begging God to take them away. And God's response was, Paul, my grace is enough for you. In fact, my power is made perfect in your weakness. In other words, my power and my glory is best put on display in the lives of ordinary, everyday, nothing to write home about people like you and me who just decide to follow in the way of Jesus. Maureen Morris was a woman that understood this. She lived in Houston, Texas back in the 1970s. She was in her 60s. Uh, She was a wife. She was a mother. 
And on the night of October 14th, 1974, an ambulance pulled up uh, across the street from her house. And she just had a prompting that maybe she should go over and make sure everything's okay and is there any way she could help. So she walked across the street. She had no idea what she was gonna be walking into. The grandmother of this house had passed away in the house, hence that was why the ambulance was there. But the mother of this house was a diagnosed schizophrenic. The house was in shambles, the windows were boarded up, and there was a young girl, 14 years old, named Mimi, that lived in this home. And she looked around and recognized, somebody needs to pay attention to her. And so she went over to her and she said, why don't you come over to my house? I've made some roast. You can have some chocolate cake. Would you like to do that? And Mimi said, I've never had roast or chocolate cake at my house. So I said, yes, sure, I'll go. And Maureen, as they began talking, gave her a New Testament and then invited her to her church, plugged her into their youth group and just started watching over her. And over time, recognized some gifts and talents in young Mimi, that she had a beautiful voice, that she was so smart. And so by the end of her high school year, Maureen said, hey, you need to go to college. You ought to go to a Christian college. And Mimi said, yeah, you and what army are gonna get me to a Christian college? And so Maureen took the challenge and she got some ladies together and they paid for Mimi to go to Abilene Christian University. And she got there, she's now a follower of Jesus, she meets her husband, uh, who is a young pastor, and she gets her bachelor's degree. She becomes a high school teacher. And then over time, she gets her master's degree. Then she gets her PhD. And today, she's Dr. Mimi, a life that was forever transformed. The whole trajectory of her life was transformed because of Maureen. She now is in a senior administrative role at a world-renowned Christian university. She oversees their entire global programming, flies all over the world every month, to see about the programming, and thousands of students every year are impacted by her efforts, by her leadership, and by her faith. All because one woman decided one afternoon, I'm gonna walk across the street and see if I can help in some way. Followed the promptings in her 60s, probably thought her best days of impacting the kingdom were behind her, and yet, just this, not only was this one life rescued, but thousands of lives have been impacted since because of her thing. And one of those lives uh, is mine and my wife's Kathy. These, uh, Mimi and her husband are some of our best friends and have been for over 30 years. You see, when Jesus left this planet, he gave his followers, you and me, an assignment. You're to go into all the world and make disciples. And we call it the Great Commission, but it's easy for us to hear that call and think, yeah, that applies to professional pastors and missionaries and, and maybe some lay people, but if it's lay people, it's those that were sitting down that have all the special gifts, not just ordinary people. And God says, hey, I wanna use everybody to build the kingdom. Pastor and author J.D. Greer, who influenced much of what I'm gonna say today, says this, the call to leverage your life for the Great Commission is not a sacred experience that God extends to a select few. The call to leverage your life for the Great Commission was included in the call to follow Jesus. When Jesus, Jesus said in Matthew 4, come follow me and I will make you fishers of people, which means when you accepted Jesus, you accepted the call to missions. We clearly stated here as our vision statement at Irving Bible Church, we say God is calling us, the people of Irving Bible Church, to become a multi-ethnic movement of what? Missionary disciples formed in the way of Jesus for the sake of the world. But what does that look like? 
How do we live out this calling? Well, I love the way J.D. Greer kind of simplifies it. He says, look, whatever you're good at, do it well for the glory of God and do it strategically for the mission of God. Whatever you're good at, because you're good at something. It may not be preaching or teaching, but you're good at something. And you're gonna use those skills in some capacity. Why not use them strategically to build the kingdom? Because God's big plan for reaching this world is not a handful of professional pastors growing really big churches and having large groups of people show up to hear a sermon on a Sunday. It's important what we do here on Sunday. But God is all about raising up ordinary people in the power of the Spirit to take the good news of the gospel with them wherever they go, where they live, where they work, and where they play. That's his plan, and that is your calling. And so to that end, I want us to look at and learn from just the life of an ordinary guy in the New Testament who God used, and I'm not overstating this, he used to literally transform the world. And I want to point out four convictions that I believe he lived by that positioned him to make the kind of impact that he have. And I believe if we can grab hold of these convictions, God will use us in remarkable ways to change the world, or at least, and probably more importantly, to change our little piece of the world. And the the guy I want us to look at this morning was named Stephen. His story is told in Acts chapter six and seven. But before we go there, I want to just give you a little background. Stephen, as far as we can tell, just a normal guy, but we're going to see that his story marks the most significant turning point in the book of Acts. Jesus had told his disciples back in Acts chapter one, I want you to go into all the world, right? Be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. And here we are now, five chapters later, and the mission seems to have gotten stalled a little bit in phase one because the gospel message has yet to leave Jerusalem. And I get it. Who would want to leave Jerusalem, right? 3,000 people saved and baptized in one day. Miracles are happening here. People are getting struck dead in the offering. I mean, there's some crazy stuff going on. The church is exploding. People's lives are being changed, but only in the confines of Jerusalem. And all that's going to change in Acts 6 and 7 with the story of Stephen. And I think his story is given to us in part as an example of what ordinary men and women in the church are supposed to look like and live like. Stephen's story begins in Acts chapter six. The apostles are just trying to keep their head above water, starting this new movement, all the logistics that go into that. And in the process of all that's happening, somehow the widows have been overlooked in the distribution of food. And so the apostles come and say, look, guys, we gotta focus on preaching and on prayer. We need some of you to get together and just help distribute the food. In other words, we're looking for some table waiters. Who wants to do that? And Stephen was one of the ones that was chosen to do that. And I'm sure if you're just watching this from the outside, it's easy to think, well, that's not that important of a job, probably not gonna have that big of impact. But it says that he did his job so well that people noticed. And many in the community, including many of the Jewish priests, began to turn their lives over to Jesus. And the religious leaders got upset about this. And so they started making up false claims and that he's you know, blasphemous and religious crimes and they bring him before the Jewish council. And I love it because this untrained layman uh, who totally hasn't been trained in theology gives the longest sermon recorded in the book of Acts. He totally schools all of them. And then it says in Acts 6.10, they could not stand up against the wisdom that the Spirit gave him as he spoke. 
And at the end of his speech in Acts 7.54, it says, when the members of the Sanhedrin heard this, they were furious and they gnashed their teeth at him. I love picturing that because I've got a little four-year-old granddaughter that does that. Just kind of when she gets frustrated, she just does this with her teeth. But Stephen, full of the Holy Spirit, looked up to heaven, saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. Look, he said, I see heaven open and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. At this, they covered their ears and yelling at the top of their voices, they all rushed at him, dragged him out of the city and began to stone him. Meanwhile, the witnesses laid their coats at the feet of a young man named Saul, who we know would later become the Apostle Paul. And while they were stoning him, Stephen prayed, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. He fell on his knees and cried out, Lord, do not hold the sin against them. And when he had said this, he fell asleep. Now, I want you to notice, because most people think that's the end of Stephen's story, because it's the end of the chapter. But remember, in the original manuscript, there were no chapter breaks. And so Stephen's story actually bleeds on into chapter 8, verse 1, where it says, Now Saul approved of putting Stephen to death, and on that day, now what day is he talking about? On the day that Stephen was stoned. On that day, a great persecution began against the church in Jerusalem, and they were all scattered throughout the region of Judea and Samaria. And then pay close attention to this next line, except for the apostles. Apparently, the apostles continued to stay in Jerusalem, huddled up, I guess, singing Kumbaya. But in verse four, it says, those who had been scattered were the ones who preached the word wherever they went. So just stop and let that sink in for a second. The first time the gospel leaves Jerusalem is in Acts 8.1, and not a single apostle is involved in it. Stephen's witness, this ordinary layman who had the courage to speak up, provokes this riot that results in people scattering and telling the good news as they go. And Luke, who's the writer here, wants to make sure we understand that not a single apostle was a part of it. And from this point forward, it will continue to be ordinary people who are at the forefront of the gospel movement. Stephen Neal wrote a book entitled The History of Christian Missions, and he details how the early church spread so quickly and powerfully in those days. And he says this, few, if any, of the great churches were founded by the apostles. Nothing is more notable than the anonymity of these early missionaries. I thought it was so interesting. He says, by the end of the first century, there's three big church planting centers. There's Antioch, there's Alexandria, and there's Rome. And he says, we don't know who founded any of those three churches. Uh, the, the, the church in Antioch, Acts 11 kind of talks about it. It says, those who were scattered by the persecution that broke out when Stephen was killed spread the word, and a great number of people believed and turned to the Lord. Just Luke's way of saying, hey, a whole bunch of people whose names I'm not even gonna mention because it's not that important, they planted a church. And it's that church that would one day send Paul out as a missionary, but Paul did not found that church. And then there's the church in Rome. Peter and Paul both organized the church here, here but they did not found it. We know Paul wanted to get the gospel to Rome because the whole last half of the book of Acts is just Paul saying, I gotta get to Rome, I gotta get to Rome, I gotta get the gospel to Rome. And if you know his life, it's like the Raiders of the Lost Ark type of adventure. He goes through shipwrecks and beatings and, and snake bites. And finally, in Acts 28, he drags his old tired body into Rome. And it says in verse 15, when he gets there, the brothers and sisters greeted him. Like, hey, Paul, great to see you. We planted a church and it's going great. No names, just the brothers and sisters. 
Nobody knows who planted these churches, just ordinary people that went and carried the good news with them because they were scattered because of Stephen's courage and his convictions. So I wanna just quickly look at four convictions that I think stand out in the life of Stephen and are the hallmark of the kind of convictions that ordinary men and women have who become world changers. And the first conviction is just simply this, the conviction that God wants to use me. Understanding that God wants to use me. When the church in Jerusalem came and said, hey, we need some people to serve some food. We need some table waiters. Who's in? Stephen said, well, I can do that because he understood. God wants to use an ordinary person like me where I am with what I have. That's his plan to change the world, right where you are with what you have. So think about where you are day in and day out, your neighborhoods, your workplaces, your schools. Look, Liam Neeson is not the only one who's been given a set of unique skills. You have been given unique skills. What if the purpose is to open doors that wouldn't otherwise be opened? Proverbs twenty two twenty nine 29 says, you see a person skilled in his work, he will stand before kings. What has God made you really good at? Maybe it's teaching or medicine or law or architecture or building or plumbing or landscaping, whatever it is. What if God gave you those skills so that one day you could stand before kings, before people of influence and tell them the good news? I've heard it said the gospel has always traveled around the world faster on the wings of business and commerce than it has through any apostolic strategy. And so what I'd like you to consider this morning is that maybe God gave you unique skills and talents for a purpose. And maybe the purpose in the skill he gave you was to spread the gospel. You know, missionaries talk about what we call the 1040 window. If you've ever heard that phrase, it's just talking about the 10th through 40th parallel that most of the people on the planet who have never heard of Jesus live in this 1040 window. This is where India and China and Afghanistan are. And this is where churches send most of their missionaries. And we should, we need more missionaries there. But guys, we're sitting here in a place called Irving, Texas, known to be one of the most diverse zip codes in the entire country. People from all over the world have shown up here, and many of them from the 1040 window. Many of you are from the 1040 window, and you are working alongside, you are living next door to, you are going to school with these people. This is your mission field. And so you can stop sitting around waiting for an extrasensory type of experience to call you into missions. Quit staring at your alphabet soup trying to blow the letters around to get some sort of assignment out of it. Your assignment has been given. And if you feel like you're not that important or not that talented, all the more reason why you should expect God to use you because God has always delighted in using ordinary people to accomplish the most extraordinary things. Paul says it this way, brothers and sisters, think of what you, think of what you were when you were called. Not many of you were wise by human standards. Not many were influential. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. God chose the weak things of the world to shame the strong. God chose the lowly things of the world and the despised things and the things that are not to nullify the things that are so that no one may boast before him. Those who change the world understand this. God wants to use me. There is a role for me in building the kingdom. Second conviction I think we see in the life of Stephen is that the Holy Spirit fills me. The most common description given to Stephen throughout these chapters is that he was filled with the Spirit. 
And ordinary people who are aware that the Holy Spirit lives in them and that the same power that raised Jesus from the dead now lives and is available to you are the ones who live with the confidence to do extraordinary things. And I say people who are aware because all believers have the Spirit of God living in them, but not all believers are aware what's really available to them. Jesus made extraordinary promises about the power and potential of the Holy Spirit living inside of us. So extraordinary that I think often we just let them kind of fly over our heads and don't think about them. But just think, John 16, seven, Jesus says, I tell you the truth, it is better for you that I go away. Because when I go away, I will send the helper to you. If I don't go away, the helper will not come. Now imagine being one of his disciples and hearing Jesus say that. You've walked alongside Jesus and now he's leaving, but he's saying it's gonna be better because a spirit is coming. Can you imagine getting to do ministry next to Jesus, alongside of Jesus? I mean, you're out teaching and people have difficult questions, you know, immersion or sprinkle and bam, Jesus has the answer right there. You don't have to worry about it. You're at a church party and they run out of appetizers and bam, Jesus multiplies the checks mix. You're good to go. Your dog dies. Bam, Jesus brings it back to life. Your cat dies. Jesus helps you bury that cat so that it stays gone forever. I'm kidding, cat people. But wouldn't it be amazing to have Jesus right here? And yet he says, no, it's actually better that if you really understood who the Holy Spirit is and the power that he brings, you would be glad that I'm living, leaving. So let me ask you this. Does your experience with the Spirit of God validate that statement? Do you wake up every morning excited, anticipating what God's Spirit living in you might wanna do through you today? Another example, Matthew eleven eleven, Jesus says, truly I tell you, among those born of women, there is not risen anyone greater than John the Baptist. Now, just full transparency, I grew up in the church of Christ and we didn't refer to him as John the Baptist. He was John the baptizer. We didn't want any confusion that you would think John was a Baptist. So John the baptizer, uh, Jesus says, was the greatest preacher to ever live. If Jesus were listening to a sermon podcast on his morning walks, it would be John the Baptist. John was the greatest human, according to Jesus, at this point, up to this point. But look what he says next. Yet whoever is least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than him. Now, what does that mean? Well, least in the kingdom means you get the least talent, I guess. You know the least about the Bible. You have the least in the personality department. Apparently, someone is going to be least in the kingdom of heaven which implies that in this little community right here, someone in this room is probably the least. I'm not trying to be ugly, it just has to be mathematically true, right? And right now some of you are thinking, well, I'm, I'm pretty sure that's me. And God's up in heaven saying, yep, you're right, it is you. <laughs> but even if that's true, and it's you, and you really are the least in the kingdom here at IBC, do you know you have more power and potential in ministry than John the baptizer? Because you have something he never had. You have the Holy Spirit of God after the resurrection permanently living inside of you, fused to your soul. And so it's no longer about your abilities. It's now just about your availability. The whole book of Acts is filled with stories of ordinary people who just follow the Spirit and they change the world. Are you listening to the Spirit? Are you allowing him to speak into your life? Stephen yielded himself to the promptings and the guidance of the Holy Spirit. Third conviction is that I will be to others what Jesus has been to me. 
It says, while they were stoning him, Stephen prayed, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. Then he fell on his knees and cried out, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. And when he had said this, he fell asleep. Now, do Stephen's words sound familiar to you? They ought to, because they're almost identical to the words Jesus spoke from the cross. When Jesus said, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. And Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. You see, in Stephen's last moments, he was thinking about what Jesus had said on the cross, and there was a good chance he was there to, to see it. And so now as he's dying, he's praying the same prayer for the people around him that Jesus had prayed for him because he understood that following Jesus means to sacrifice yourself for others. I mean, think about this. Where would you be today if Jesus had not gone to the cross for you? Where would you be? And the answer is you'd be in exactly the same place that the people in your office and on your street and in your neighborhood are without you. Martin Luther once said, it wouldn't matter if Jesus died a thousand times if nobody ever heard about it. Carl F. Henry said, the gospel is only good news if it gets there in time. And Stephen understood that. And you remember the end of our vision statement here at IBC, it says, for the sake of the world. You know, there's 2.8 billion people, 6,500 unreached people groups in the world that have never heard about Jesus. That's our world. The problem is, if you're like me, I hear numbers like this, and it doesn't really mean anything. It's kind of my eyes get blurred over with big numbers like that. Um, Joseph Stalin, who we wouldn't normally quote in church uh, or anywhere or anytime, said this kind of famously. He said, the death of one is a tragedy, but the death of a million, just a statistic. It's pretty chilling coming from him. But there's a little truth in that, isn't there? The number can get so overwhelming that it loses all of its meaning. For the sake of the world can sound a bit like that. I don't even know where to start, so I'll just stay in bed and do nothing. So what if as a first step this morning, we narrowed that down a little and said, for the sake of a person in your world, for the sake of a person in your world, St. Augustine once said, he loves each of us as if there's only one of us. So who is your one? Does somebody come to mind for you? Will you be to that person who Jesus has been to you? There's someone in your life right now who needs you to see them. And I don't know who it is, but I guess you probably do. And if you don't, maybe that could become your prayer. God, who is the one person you want me to see? Who is my one? And finally, the fourth conviction of Stephen, I think, is that Jesus is worth it. Jesus is worth it. Look what it says. It says, Stephen, full of the Holy Spirit, looked up to heaven, saw the glory of God, Jesus standing at the right hand of God. Look, he said, I see heaven open and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. My favorite part of this whole story, because scholars have pondered over this, because it's so odd that Stephen's seen Jesus standing at the right hand of God, because everywhere else in Scripture, when Jesus is at the right hand of God, he's sitting it's a theological concept that's important that Jesus has set down because the work of salvation has been accomplished. But for here, for some reason, why in this moment is he standing? And I think there's only one possible explanation. He's standing to welcome his son Stephen home. The world has risen up against Stephen. The Romans, the Jews are mocking him. They're calling him names. They're throwing stones at him. He's a heretic. You have wasted your life, Stephen. And it's like Jesus just can't help himself. He stands up in that moment and says, well done, good and faithful servant. They may call you a fool. I call you my child. And in that moment, as Stephen breathes his last breath, he looks to heaven and says with his life, Jesus was worth it all. 
See, following Jesus is not always easy. Probably means you're going to have to give up some stuff. You don't get to keep everything. You don't get to go where you want, how you want, with what you want, how to do it the way you want. It's not the way it works. If you're serious about following Jesus, at some point, he's most likely going to take you 180 degrees in the opposite direction of where you think you want to be. So you get to choose whether you're going to follow Jesus or not. You don't get to choose what that's going to look like. And so at some point, you're going to have to make a choice as to whether or not you think he's worth it and whether you would rather have him or whatever else it is that your heart wants to go after. But Stephen was convinced. He was convicted. Jesus was worth it all. And life gets so much more simple when you realize you're living your life for an audience of one, that life really is just about Jesus. I love how Max Licato describes the scene and how it may look one day when we walk into heaven. He says, the same hands that stretch the heavens will touch your cheeks. The same hands that form the mountains will caress your face. Great, Jesus said, is your reward in heaven. He must have smiled when he said that line. And before you know it, your appointed arrival time will come and you'll descend the ramp and enter the city and you'll see the faces that are waiting for you. And you'll hear your name spoken by those who love you. And maybe, just maybe, in the back, behind the crowds, the one who would rather die than live without you will remove his pierced hands from his heavenly robe and applaud. I promise you, that will be worth it. We are the church and God has placed us. God has placed you in this time in specific places, workplaces, neighborhoods, schools, coffee shops, grocery stores to bring the good news, to bring the gospel. God wants to use you. God has given you his Holy Spirit. You have everything that you need. God wants you to be to those people who he has been to you and God promises in the end that it will be worth it all. See, God uses ordinary people like you and me to change the world. And so as we close, I just want to try to prove this to you. As you think about your testimony, if you're a follower of Jesus and you think about how you got to Jesus and the people that helped bring you along, if there is anybody significant in your story that wasn't a professional pastor, wasn't a missionary, wasn't a theologian, a seminary professor, but just somebody ordinary, like a grandparent, a parent, a teacher, a coach, a neighbor, a friend. If anybody is in your story of getting to Jesus like that, I want you to stand up. Come on, stand up. If anybody like that helped bring you to Jesus, played a significant role in your testimony. Now look around. This is the power of ordinary people being used by God. And if this stirs up something inside of you that says, yes, I want, I want to be used like that. I want my life to matter like that in the eternal scheme of things. Then I just got a couple of suggestions as we end this morning. Number one, show up next week. Barry's launching this new series called For the Sake of the World. As we talk about how to bring hope into this world we find ourselves in. And then if you'd like to get in a smaller environment to discuss these things, I want to invite you to the class I'm a part of. It's called Synergy. It meets down in Education Room D at the very end of the hall, 9 a.m. next week. We're going to start a new series called One at a Time, where we're going to talk about how to bring hope one person at a time the way that Jesus did. All ages, all stages, we'd love to have you there. But show up. We want to be people who make an impact in this world. Okay, you can stay, sit down now. 
as we celebrate the one, the God who went to a cross for ordinary people like you and me. Thank you for listening to this teaching from Irving Bible Church. For more information on how to join us on a Sunday or take your next step, visit irvingbible.org.